Right from Vine Pairs New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, we're going to try to not get you fired tonight, but maybe we are going to try to get you fired because I know that you're on a tight deadline to get out of here and do this podcast real fast, but we're going to roll the dice and see what happens. And maybe your boss will or won't fire you later. How do you feel about that? Well, you already threatened to fire me from the podcast in the pre-show, so shit, man, I'd be totally out of jobs. It's a good thing Nick brought in uh, this uh, bottle of Iron Balls gin that he talked about a few uh, episodes ago that was, that's uh, from Thailand. Gotta it, and I got to tell okay. you, I gotta. T- I know, right? This is becoming a, a scary trend at the beginning of shows. What I talk about, just but from you, just I, from yeah, you. <laughs> well, I said what I talk about, but I gotta tell you, whatever you would have imagined from the the label and, and packaging of a brewery called Iron Balls, it both does and does not live up to my expectations. Well, I'll I'll post a picture when we uh, post this episode, but. Nick, you got anything to say in your defense here? It's great gin. That is my only defense. I want you to try it before you go uh, and show up slosh to your meeting. Well, that's that's how I show up to most of my meetings, so whatever. That's nothing new. Uh, how are oh, you doing, Adam? No one's fired you over that. Oh, I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. I, you know, it's pretty exciting. We uh, we got a new podcast set up uh, in the office. Uh, we're not in the room we're going to be in officially. Um We've got a we've got a really nice room in the back that we're going to soundproof more. So right now we're in the conference room, so it's a little echoey. Um, but I think it sounds a lot better. What do you think, Nick? It sounds great. Uh, I love what you've done. Can't wait for my all-expenses-paid trip out to New York to uh, really get things dialed in out there. Yeah, Nick's really good at hanging soundproofing. And we got Keith on the boards here, too, which is going to be cool. Oh, my goodness. Everyone, cool. it's a party. On the ones and twos. Everyone's in here, yeah. So uh, so before we, we kick off today's uh, topic, uh, which I think is a really interesting one, uh, we got an amazing email from another active listener uh kale war eagle kale we're gonna i I think your name's kale maybe it's cal but i like the thought that your name could be kale and you went to auburn and that's awesome um and he talked a lot about uh our last episode from last week about you know drinking and sporting events and he as well used to sneak uh booze into jordan jordan hare stadium it's jordan not jordan uh and you know talked about basically the the his question was a lot around how we, we talked about that there being more craft offerings in the stadiums, but he was sort of saying like, okay, that's, that is happening, but are those really craft brands? Because the brands that he's really seen, you know, sort of come into, uh, you know, these stadiums are still really the big brands who have craft, faux craft or craft-esque products right so he sees a lot of goose island obviously he lives in chicago um so lots of goose island in his stadiums i think here in new york which which is a point you know you do see um some of the the larger abi um brands but i will say at least in my my experience it's not just them right i think you know for example i use the i i talked about how the mets have brought McKellar in and that you see McKellar in the Met Stadium. I see a lot of Brooklyn Brewery, whether or not you think, oh, I want super, super, super local, they're still a craft brand, right? Like they're still completely independent. Um, well, you know, they do have some foreign ownership. Okay, come at me, beer bros. But like, you know, they, they're for the most part, you know, an independent craft brand, at least according to the Brewers Association's definition of them. And you see them at a bunch of different, you know, stadiums. Uh, you know, the garden being a, a prime example. So I don't, th- I, I, there definitely are, but I do think that it's also, it's not just about, uh, you know, being small. It's about having the scale to be able to, to serve that many people at a stadium on a given game. Right. So I think that just naturally is going to exclude some of the, you know, 
producers who may not have enough product to be able to fulfill demand at any given time. I don't know, Zach, what do you think? So I want to give the example of, of a situation where I think it's done really, really well, and that's uh, the Seattle Mariners here. And Oh, here we I, go. Well, pardon me. We talked plenty about your football team. Um, yeah, it's just because the, 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 the person who asked the question also <laughs> happened to be associated with the team, so therefore it was a fair point. Fair enough. But, I mean, just to bring up Seattle is a way to bring up Seattle. I mean, Well, I mean, what, what, other, <sighs> what, other, what other venues am I supposed to talk about? In any case, what I will say is that I think – you know, Green the, Bay. <laughs> that's Nick's Your wife's business, there. not mine. Yeah, well, she's she's currently out of town, so I can't get her perspective oh. on this. Uh, okay. But anyhow, continue. Uh, what I would say is that I think um, you know that for for all their struggles on the field, and they have been plenty, uh, the Mariners have done a really good job in terms of integrating um, a lot of local product into the stadium experience here. And that whether that's uh, food, and they've worked with a lot of um, actually even some pretty small restaurant companies in the area, um, yeah, including but also some larger ones, uh, to add concessions. And in beer in particular, I think they've done a really remarkable job. I actually wrote a, a piece for a few months, a few years ago, rather, about how they um, kind of the various ways in which they try and integrate craft beer from the Seattle area into the stadium experience. And they, they have kind of a multi-level option. So some of the larger local craft breweries have, you know, beer available at a number of different concession stands, either on draft or, or in can. But then they do have a couple of stations th- th- sort of throughout the stadium that are specifically like basically an ind- a little beer bar or, or beer stand where they can do just a keg or two from any given brewery. So they, they had stuff on from, you know, really small producers and they rotate through them, um, like, you know, maybe not game to game, but homestand to homestand. And it was really pretty remarkable to me because it, they saw it as being kind of critical to providing the experience that, uh, you know, Mariners fans or people going to games who are beer drinkers really wanted to have. You know, they obviously haven't been able to do that with wine or, or spirits in the same, uh, to the same degree in part because they sell a lot less of those and they sell beer. But it was pretty remarkable and is, is especially remarkable when contrasted to the pretty miserable options at uh, a Seahawks game where you basically get, you know, really, really large scale, either, you know, AB and Bev stuff or you get, you know, maybe um, the sort of pseudo, uh, the more local pseudo craft breweries that they've, they or other large companies have bought. And it, it really is kind of like, you know, the, the, the vibe you get, and maybe it's fair, maybe it's not, is the Seahawks kind of don't give a shit because like, you're going to pay and you're going to come and they're going to sell every game. And the Mariners, in part because the team's been garbage for a long time, they realize that they have to offer more to their fans than just the baseball game and whatever beer they, they you know, deem, you know, most cost efficient. And and I do I do commend them for that. And I think that's something that you're seeing more and more. Um, and, and I would imagine that uh, our listeners all over the country can can sort of cite examples uh, on either end, but of, of places where the team and the concessions at the games have really done a nice job of integrating the local in particular brewing scene because i think that's easier but but maybe wine beer or wine and spirits as well and if you've heard about that we would love to hear about it from you yeah man i like so i think you make a good point and i think one of the biggest points though where i do think you see the craft offerings excel the most i think for kale again war eagle kale uh that is probably an anomaly is that he's saying that sort of it he said in his um message to us that you know when he goes to see the cubs he still doesn't he basically feels like he only sees goose i will say i think on the whole baseball has done a better job um than football and basketball at integrating more local products uh into the 
the experience. Um, I think that's probably for a, a wide variety of reasons, but the biggest because baseball games are just so long and fucking boring <laughs> that you've got to have something for people to do. And whether that means being able to eat, you know, at a bunch of different really great restaurants at the stadiums or, you know, drink a variety of different drinks. Like people are there for a long time. And for most people, that's been the only real reason or excuse to go to the games anymore, right? Is like for that all those other activities around the game. And I think Major League Baseball has been pretty smart about that because I, for one, really think baseball is just... <laughs> I mean, I... Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm so a like, baseball you know, fan, but I can't dispute that that comment. And I think the other part of it that's relevant here, too, is like, you know, baseball is, as opposed to, you know, certainly as opposed to basketball and as opposed to a fair amount of football, is played out of doors, mostly in pretty good exactly. weather. And it's sort of a it, not that all of those sports can be associated with beer. Certainly, football is. But you know, in some ways, when we think about football and and beer, we think about the sports bar or you know your couch at home. We don't really. I mean, certainly people drink plenty at games. But you know, if it's eleven degrees out and you're you know on the the bleachers at uh, Lambeau Field, for example, you probably. I mean, I'm sure plenty of people are drinking beer. But at that point, it's almost like. Could you? Can you even taste it? Does it really matter what it is? It's probably more important. Right, exactly. It's probably more important that it's just there. And so I, just, I would just I, have it help me warm up. That's yeah, all I care exactly. About. <laughs> and I think I think baseball because of the season and the experience and the fact that it's mostly played outdoors. Not every single stadium in the in Major League Baseball, but almost all of them are out of doors. It just kind of lends itself to a bit more of a the same vibe you would have on a Saturday afternoon going to the park or going to a beer garden. You know, you want options. You want to be able to have the beer you like best, not just something because you need something to get you through the game although you do need something to get you through the game because even me a baseball fan definitely needs something to get through the game totally i mean i need a lot (laughs) anyways uh so so, uh let's get into today's in today's topic which i think is really interesting one um some of the you know our loyal listeners might think that we're a little late to the game on this topic but look man we don't have to react to everything that happens on twitter the next day all right i mean i do but you don't live it you know We know you do, Zach. We know you react to stuff on Twitter all the time. I hate Twitter. I'm never on it. Uh, So if you want to follow me, uh, loyal listeners, catch me on Instagram. You you can see me on the gram, but I'm not going to be on Twitter that often. But this did happen on Twitter. um, And usually the most horrible things in society do happen on Twitter, like we all know the other things. Uh, He has orange hair. Anyways, so... um, that is that the the writer Helen Rosner from the New Yorker, who is a beloved uh, writer, tweeted a few weeks ago a general thought, which was that she had been at a restaurant uh, and the wine list was extremely confusing. And basically, she said, "How have we not solved this problem?" Right? We talk a lot about how wine is supposed to be more accessible and that's one of the things that's holding wine back is that it's it's inaccessibility and why do we still have these lists where i don't even know what i'm supposed to order or how i'm supposed to tell you what i want to order right so there's no real there seems to be no real rhyme or reason to the organization of the list uh the names are super confusing the prices are all over the place right and can we just all decide that we are going to figure out a way to make these lists more accessible and easier from People like me to decipher so I can find what I want and tell you what I want and understand what I want. A lot of people agreed with her, but a lot of others did not, especially the cadre of people I'd like to call the brosoms, who came after her basically saying, you know, this is, you know, this is traditionally the way the wine lists are set up. Like, how dare you for basically 
criticizing the wine list like this is how a wine list should be we should be writing you know wines in this way with the you know the producer name and the region name and maybe not the grape name and yada 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 and blah 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 and you know she got a lot of heat for it and there were a lot of people again like i said that came out in support of it but a lot of people that also disagreed so zach i'm very curious like to sort of pick up this topic with you and talk a little about the accessibility of wine lists and sort of where where we both fall on on this uh, spectrum i i think we're probably going to fall in the same area but also i got our tastings director keith in the room with us who owned an italian uh restaurant and wine bar for 10 years and had i think a pretty easy to understand list but with like what 50 pages of wines keith was it 50 pages of wines I think it was about 50 pages. Yeah. So, so which so to, to Back most in the day when you did that stuff. So with, to most people would be like super inaccessible. Right. But so Zach, what do you think about this whole, this whole controversy? Well, so I think you actually make a really good point And one that I want to uh, ask Keith about in a minute, which is the inaccessibility being driven in part by the actual wording, but also just the scope and size of a list. You know, there, there's something about that. And, and to, to point to the example that, that Helen tweeted a picture of uh, when she made her initial tweet, you know, it's a list that, I'm sure they're all good wines. I got nothing to say negative about the selection of, you know, French white wines that happens to be displayed in the in the image, but it's a pretty it, there's not a, there's nothing to work with as a as a wine drinker other than, you know, the region, the producer name, you know, their sort of proprietary name and then a vintage and a price. Except for a couple places it happens to mention variety, but it's not clear why or 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 if that's consistent from from wine to wine. And in general, my, my feeling is this. I think a wine list should communicate five critical pieces of information with every wine that's on there. It should communicate the variety, or if it's a blend, the most important varieties. It should communicate where the wine is from, who made it, what vintage it is, and what the price is. And if your list doesn't do all of those things, then you have a shitty list. I don't care what wine is on it. You have not done your job as a as a wine director, as a sommelier, as whomever is is composing the list. You can add additional information if you want. I think that's, you know, descriptors can be nice. Sometimes they're kind of silly and or redundant. Sometimes you can add, you know, there's more information that could be gleaned. But frankly, if you have those five things, then I think most people who drink wine on a regular basis should be able to navigate your list without too much trouble. If you don't put all those things, then I think you are failing your guest. You're either expecting too much of them, you're expecting them to know what this relatively obscure producer from an obscure part of the Loire Valley, what the variety that goes into their white wine is. I mean, I don't even know that for all these wines that she posted. And I wouldn't, I would guess because there's, you know, there's only a few possibilities in most cases, but I don't know for sure. And, and if I, as a, you know, relatively experienced wine professional don't know, then one in 50 people who walks into that restaurant, one in a hundred is going to know. I mean, it, who are you writing your list for? Right? Like no. I, it's just insane to me. Um, I don't know. I, I, do you think there's other information that we should like be concerned with communicating? Or yes. does that seem like a, okay, so what? So, so I think, look, I think these are, these are the core, but I think that for the average consumer, that's still not enough. Right. So I think people who, so the, the people that need to get together here, you guys, we need to all talk and just get it together are wine retailers and psalms because i actually think and i'm very curious now to hear what keith thinks because he owned both a wine shop and a restaurant i think being in retail changes the way you think about wine and changes the way you see you really see in a different way how consumers talk about wine and look to buy wine so i think those five tenants are important zach but i think if you really want to make a list accessible it needs to go further one the very least you need to go from light to full-bodied, 
right? There, it makes it a lot easier for someone to say, okay, I'm in the mood for a light-bodied red or a full-bodied red. Now, if you want to do that in every country section, because you have a massive list and you have wines from France and Italy and Spain and you know the Eastern Europe, and then you have also America and Australia and Argentina and Chile, fine, do it in every section. I think that's a little excessive. But consumers are looking for a certain style of wine when they go out. I'm looking for a lighter wine, a higher acid wine, or you know, a heavier wine, a bigger wine, right? Like it makes it much easier for them. And the other thing I think you need to do, if you can do it, is somehow compare it to styles hmm. to explain to them the kinds of wines they want, especially if you are dealing with a wine list that is dealing with lots of grapes they've never heard of or regions they're not familiar with, right? So again, like you can do it in the descriptions of the wines, et cetera. But if you make it easier for people to say, okay, cool. Like I know I like cabs and you're, and this is instead like a, you know, a wine from an Ayuritico from Greece, which is a very full bodied red, right? From the Peloponnese, but you would never fucking know it if you are, any kind of regular <laughs> wine drinker that's not a super geek, then explaining that like, hey, if, if you're in, into like Cabernets and things like that, you might like this, I think is very helpful. What you should not do is instead get super geeky and create wine lists organized by soil type or <laughs> wine lists. And everyone knows what wine lists I'm talking about. Well, that have listened to this podcast for a while, right? But that's a very famous one uh, from, a, from a restaurant that has now basically franchised, but uh, started in Charleston. But there's a lot of those kinds of esoteric things that I see people who are really, you know, geeky about wine do. And honestly, you know what that does? It makes wine way more inaccessible and it actually makes you look like a snob. Even if you don't mean to be, it makes the list look snobby. It makes you as the Somme look snobby. Um, You know, having done the the La Best Somme competition now, all of us actually on the podcast were involved in one of the, the legs of that competition. Like I've seen how easily when you talk to sommeliers, you can geek out, right? And that's awesome to geek out uh, to other people obsessed with wine. I love geeking out. But to the general consumer, that's the furthest thing from what they want. They just want something that they can really easily understand. But Keith, I'm curious from your perspective, like, are we on the mark here? Are things we're saying right? Do you disagree? What do you think? I agree with everything. Um, But to be more specific, I think that trends change. And I feel that no matter what you do with your wine list, however you make it, I agree with the five points. I agree that it's a good, nice to have like light to medium and stuff like that. You can do it by price if you want. Sometimes, you know, my, my wine list was huge, but this is back in the day when huge wines were the trend. And I had an Italian restaurant with a very deep wine list. And I had actually every region had a map of the region and a description of the region. And then the next page would have all the wines on it. And all the wines were kind of listed mostly by price. And we would talk to the customer about the prices they wanted and all that. No matter what happens, you as a person, as a human, need to communicate to the other human the thing that they're trying to get at. So a couple things. If, if this lady, I don't, I don't really know what's going on with this, this article, but I didn't see what she posted. But if she's complaining and people are agreeing, something's wrong with the wine list. The first person you need to think about is the consumer, and that's it. You're making money. that They're giving you money. There's your revenue. Everything. If you force something on a customer that they don't want, they're not going to come back. They're going to get confused, and it's not going to help us evolve as a wine drinking culture. What we have to do is we have to make sure that whatever we do with our wine lists, we make everything clear and concise. If you want to do the, just the five things, great. What I used to do is because Italy's kind of crazy, I would always do, I would actually put the, 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 the variety in there. Or if it was a blend, I'd put the blend in there. 
And I would actually talk to the consumer because they're here to spend money to have a night. You have time to talk to them. It's actually even more so. I was actually an owner of a restaurant and I worked the, I, I did all kinds of stuff, but Psalms have one thing to do. Talk to the consumer. That's it. That's all you have to do. And if you can't, portray or convey the information from the wine list, even if it's confusing to the consumer, something's wrong. I think it just comes down to that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Keith, I have a question for you kind of in that vein, because since you were talking about sort of having this very large list and then maybe sort of seeing the, the I don't know, the industry change a little bit. I, my mm-hmm. my feeling is that the the large list outside of a few places that are like aiming for you know like a wine spectator grand award or something is really uh like a you know an endangered species and and people just you know so you know more than a, i mean i don't even know a hundred two hundred maybe three hundred selections is basically something you don't find outside of a few restaurants do you i mean is that something that you guys have seen and 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 to me i want to add too i think the benefit to that is you you avoid some of this issue that that Helen and others have pointed out, which is like you have a bunch of really similar wines on a list, and it's like, well, like, are you is that really like are you really serving the guest by having you know a bunch of very similar wines at similar price points, or are you really not doing them a service because you as the person who's making the list should probably be saying, hey, you know, instead of fifteen different expressions of Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire Valley that are all within. $35 of the same price, maybe we should pick one or two. And our job is to say, hey, we think these are the best ones or or whatever. We think these are the most classic or represent something interesting. And and that, you know, trend away from the really like the comprehensive list that requires, you know, sort of requires the the guest to do all this sifting through page after page. I mean, it feels like that is uh, largely gone from the industry. And is that what you guys see? Yeah, and I think that's totally fine. I think that we in the wine world have evolved, and we've evolved from the 80s, from the 70s, from the 80s, from the 90s. We don't drink heavy oaky cabs as much anymore. We drink more acidic. Things change, and our perception and our attention deficits change. Actually, I, you, could, you could actually think about it as we're in a social media world now. Why would we want to look at a long book when we only communicated 180 or 280 characters at a time? So let's, let's there's just for some reason, I think it's post, post-recession, I think, also is a part of it is after the recession, we started seeing more and more restaurants not wanting to invest so much money into their wine cellars. And I think wine lists naturally got smaller. And as wine lists got smaller, people, consumers like, oh, this is nice. And I actually, towards the end, before I closed my restaurant, the, the last year I did that. I scaled my wine list down dramatically, emptied my cellar a little bit, and just kind of had a nice two-page wine list. And it, it was a it was amazing to watch. For the time that I had my big list, it worked. And when I switched, it worked. So I think there is a trend going towards smaller wine lists. It's also not as much to talk about. See, I, I, see, I, think, I think that's interesting because I feel like we're going now back in the opposite direction. Like we, have, we went to small wine lists, and now we're going back to larger wine lists. And look, I think that there's a time and a place for both. I, I do agree with what you guys are saying, which is I think that there's like, unless I'm at a few restaurants, right? So, uh, or I'm trying to win a stupid award, right? <laughs> there isn't, if, right, we don't talk about, why are we talking about another publication? But um, I, I don't feel like I need a list with 30 different wines that are white burgundy, 40 different wines that are Barolo, 20 different wines that are Bordeaux. Like, I just don't, right? Yeah. But I do want some sort of variety. In that, I do hate when I get to a restaurant and I'm like, 
oh, this list is so little that there's nothing really on here that I'm super excited for right now because like your only two light-bodied reds, let's say, are like one is, you know, an Oregon Pinot Noir and I wasn't feeling that right now. And the other is, I don't know, from from Burgundy. And I didn't see anything that was like what I was really feeling in the light variety, in the light category. There was, there's nothing from Nebbiolo, which I'm always in the mood for. There's, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing from uh, Australia or New Zealand, et cetera, right? And so I'm instead like going to either drink something else or maybe I'm going to wind up getting a wine that I wasn't as much in the mood for. So a deeper list at least can allow me to have a little bit more to play with. But then you're right. I think when they get really deep and really huge, it becomes very hard to find anything uh, to not be overwhelmed. The only thing that I think I do like about restaurants when they have somewhat of a not deep list, but a larger list is when it allows them to have gems for you to discover that are great buys that are not expensive. So what I mean by that is we were actually talking to um, Andrea Morris, who's the beverage director of uh, Union Square Cafe on uh, Monday night, Keith and I. And the thing that like Danny Meyer has done forever, which is really amazing, is all of his lists across all of his restaurants always have these really incredible gems you can find. So you can find like, I remember finding a Nebbiolo from 2005 on a list at Marta a few months ago that was 55 bucks a bottle, right? She talks about having like Rieslings on her list at, at certain restaurants that are these gems you can find that are, for, you know, 20 years old for 70, 80 bucks a bottle, right? Like that I think is then cool if that's what you're doing with your list. If instead your list is just like, look how baller I am and look at all these wines that you don't know and they're also all really expensive and they're all, you know, Premier crew burgundies, then I'm not as interested. I feel like if a Psalm is mad about somebody complaining about that, they are not, they don't have the right idea of what they're doing because when it comes down to it, people have a little bit of money. They want to go out. They want to enjoy themselves. They want to be talked to like humans. And if they see a wine list that overwhelms them, the person that's talking to them about the wine should be able to bring it down to the street. Let's talk about it on the block. This wine is called Schiava. It's a red grape from Piedmont. You're going to love it. It's going to be awesome. It's like Pinot Noir. Also, for a smaller wine list, like you said with those two, the, if there's only two, like I'm not feeling this, I'm not feeling that. The beauty of smaller wine lists is you can actually tailor those wines to the actual menu, knowing that when people come in and they sit down, you know that you've paired those wines with that particular menu. So, yes, there's less, there's less to select from, but you as a server or a psalm, have the tools right there on the wine list knowing everything's going to jive with the menu. So for example, if someone's like, I'm not feeling this New Zealand Pinot, like that's cool. Maybe give me, let me give you a taste of it. Cause this lamb you're about to get, we actually paired this with this. So it's really exciting for us and you just have to make it fun. Right. Yeah. That makes I want to me. I want to advance a, a slightly cynical thought here too, which I know we never do on this podcast, but so <laughs> well, you never do. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're equally balanced in our cynicism, Adam. Um, I will say that I think the, uh, you know, as this transition has happened from larger to broadly larger to smaller lists, and at the same time, it's come with the sort of cultural rise of the sommelier. I look at sort of the lists that um, someone that like Helen posted and lists like that, that are sort of essentially incomprehensible to a non-professional. And I see them as someone's attempt, whether conscious or not, at job security. And if the 50-page wine list was or even longer with many, many vintages of the same wine was the sort of previous generation way of needing someone who was a wine professional to come to the table and explain, well, why should I buy the 93 versus the 94 versus the 95? Or here are, yes, here is a, a Premier Cru Burgundy from, you know, 
11 different um, producers all from the same vineyard. You know, th- those kinds of lists, because they're no longer that common, maybe don't provide a lot of jobs. But the, the, the list that requires, you know, someone to decipher it for you, that you need someone to hold your hand through it. Look, I think there's something nice about a restaurant where there's someone on hand who can actually do that. But for one, many of these restaurants don't actually have someone on hand all the time who can do that. And if they don't, if even if they have someone on hand for Friday and Saturday night, they might not have someone on a Monday night. They might not have someone on a Wednesday lunch if you want to get a bottle of wine. Um, and the other problem is, even if there is someone on hand, how often is that person really capable, as Keith talked about, of of taking their knowledge and making it accessible to the average person. Because to me, when I look at a list like this, I see someone who views their knowledge as in some way precious and is going to share it with the average guest only grudgingly. You know, they're going to try to retain their sort of elevated position or or perceived elevated position over the the potential drinker. And that shit I'm not interested in. I mean, like, I think all of us, we're just not interested in in an industry, especially surrounding wine, that, that still kind of says, oh, I am the guru, the Swami on high. You must, you know, uh, you know, sort of prostrate yourself in front of me and and maybe I will tell you what wine you can you could or should drink. And and these lists, even if they're not as inaccessible in one way as the massive tome that we've all seen, are still kind of hiding behind a, a language and a style that makes them frankly inaccessible to almost everyone. And that shit's just it's dumb. It's it's bad for business, as Keith said. And it's just bad for all of us, right? It creates this, it continues to um, perpetuate this idea that wine is something that is elitist. And frankly, all of us who love wine and are in the industry in one way or another should be pretty concerned about that because as we've seen, there are beverages coming after the wine drinker. And and you and I may laugh, and, and or I don't think we laugh anymore. We might have laughed once about, you know, what things like uh, White Claw and other hard seltzers were doing to, to wine imports. But between that and potential or existing tariffs and potentially more tariffs and all that like wine is not you know guaranteed of anything in in this country and treating it like it is is a bad idea and it's bad for sommeliers to continue to act as if they will have jobs and they will have a a sort of you know esteemed position in restaurants and in society and if you don't make your product more accessible whatever that is you're going to lose your business frankly and if if you're going to have an esoteric wine list and you don't make the decision to put somebody on the floor that can explain that, what are we even doing? Top down. If the owner wants to do this and says, I want an eclectic, crazy, what the fuck is this wine, wine list, I need people that can come and say, hey, this is called Sauvignon. You've never heard of it. You can't pronounce it. Let me explain it to you. If you don't have that, you need all of it. And the wine list is a living thing. It changes all the time. It's fluid and and. and and there's always there's always needs to be somebody around to talk about the wine. That's just really simple. I don't understand what's and and, and the fact that people get all up in arms. If those psalms are so mad at that person for complaining about that wine list, then change the wine list. Change the way it's done. But you have the you're you're a psalm. You have the information in your head. You don't. You can just make it easier to read. It's all. It's not a big deal. Look, I think I think like look. Also, it's just there's. To close out this conversation, at the end of the day, like it's just it's just fucking fermented grape juice, guys. Like, there's no reason to be so precious about it. And I think the problem is that you know, someone who is has a very large following on Twitter, again, you know, had a criticism, and some other people felt attacked. At the end of the day, this is we're, we're allowed to have criticisms. We're allowed to have thoughts about things. We're allowed to have different opinions that are different from other people and that's okay. And it doesn't mean that we 
that anyone's attacking the profession or attacking the tradition or whatever. It's just someone saying, hey, like this is where I feel like I don't understand wine and why wine has felt confusing to me and sort of a gate that I can't unlock. And I'm saying that I wish that you would make this more accessible to me so that I could unlock that gate because maybe I'd become one of the largest cheerleaders, right? Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And so don't take that as someone saying, oh God, like you guys are the worst, you guys and gals. It's just someone saying like, hey, this is where I I feel uncomfortable. And I'd really love it if someone could make me feel more comfortable. And wine lists are for the consumer, not for clout for other psalms. Exactly. That's what it is. And, and I think that's why we got to stop these fucking awards for wine lists. Well, because who is that award for? Yeah, right. It's weird. Who's that award for? Exactly. At the end of the day, that's the moral of the story. Let's stop it all and just be all about that consumer. Uh, and Zach, as always, uh, thank you so much for another great conversation. Keith on the ones and twos. Thanks, man. You got it, man. Uh, Nick, always a pleasure. You know, I think every episode now we try to talk about White Claw just for you. Um, and as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please, uh, drop us a review, give us a rating. It really helps people discover the show and we will see everyone right back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. Now for the credits. The Vine Pair podcast is produced by myself and Zach Jabal and is engineered by Nick Patrie. We're recorded out of Cloud Studios in Seattle, Washington, and also in our New York City headquarters. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vine Pair staff who help us conceive of the show every single week. Thanks again for listening.